Hello, Rebecca Mays here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. I want to acknowledge that this program was recorded on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. This episode of Stick Together was produced on Jarjarwarung country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. It is brought to you on your local community radio station thanks to the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Happy NADOC week. This week we'll hear from Dave Caron from Earthworker Cooperative about why they are passionate about demilitarising the economy and how to do it. But first, some union news. From July 1st, employers in Victoria who deliberately underpay wages or other entitlements like superannuation could face substantial fines or up to 10 years jail. This is a huge worker-led victory. Union members campaigned together to make wage theft a crime to bring justice and change to exploited workers. Until now, an employee stealing from the till was a criminal matter, but an employer stealing thousands from their employees was merely an administrative error. The worker could be charged by police for theft and could receive a criminal record, but the boss would simply be asked to repay what they stole. The objective of this legislation is to act as a real deterrent to wage theft. In industries such as hospitality, wage theft is so commonplace that honest employers are at a genuine competitive disadvantage. The Victorian Union movement will be pushing for prosecutions through the newly created Wage Inspectorate Victoria, who will have the power to investigate and prosecute cases of wage theft. Inspectors will be able to enter workplaces of the business owner to inspect and seize documents. Watch this space. The Respect at Work Bill was introduced to the Australian Parliament on June 24th. The ACTU and Professionals Australia, who represents workers in a range of professions including IT, architecture, engineering and pharmacy, has since responded, urging the federal government to make amendments to ensure proper legislative protections are in place to prevent sexual harassment and gendered violence at work. The Respect at Work report was commissioned by the Morrison government and laid out a comprehensive set of reforms to better ensure safer workplaces for women in Australia. Professionals Australia CEO Jill McCabe said that the bill requires significant amendment to meet that critical standard. The report found that our laws are failing to keep workers safe and made 55 recommendations, many of which have not been implemented. Ms McCabe said that the report's recommendations represent the minimum that the federal government should be doing to support women in the workplace. In its current form, The bill is a missed opportunity and does not address the fact that the burden will continue to be on the shoulders of individual women to enter into a complex and lengthy complaints process at their own cost and risk. Our figures show that almost one third of women in science, technology, engineering and maths have been sexually harassed in the course of their employment. Only one in five had sought advice on dealing with the matter and one in six left their workplace. The fact that almost half took no action at all shows how systemic and widespread this problem is and the urgent need for a comprehensive and effective legislative response. McCabe said that Professionals Australia took the view that the bill should also be amended to provide for 10 days paid family and domestic violence leave to all workers. ABS figures released this week show that family and domestic violence related sexual assault surged by 13% during 2020 compared with 2% the previous years. 
This adds to the urgency of legislating for support to help women escape violent situations. The bill has been referred to the Senate Employment and Education Committee to report by 6th of August 2021. Workers at the Victorian International Container Terminal, or VICT, at Melbourne's Web Dock have won significant improvements to job security, working hours and rates of pay following a three-year industrial campaign. The Maritime Union of Australia said the agreement would deliver immediate benefits to the workforce, with 75% of casual roles being converted to permanent jobs, along with pay increases of between 14.5 and 50% over four years, depending on employment classifications. The MUA has now finalised agreements with VICT, DP World Australia, Hutchison, and have reached in-principle agreement with Flinders Adelaide Container Terminal, leaving Patrick as the only container terminal operator in the country where the union has been unable to successfully conclude negotiations. The VITC Enterprise Agreement contains significant family-friendly provisions, including new rosters that reduce hours of work at the terminal, less reliance on overtime, vastly improved long-service leave provisions, and the introduction of income protection insurance. Job security provisions will also prevent VICT from outsourcing, offshoring or contracting out work covered by the agreement, while workers will have import prior to any forced redundancies. The VICT and the MUA have also settled several long-running legal disputes, with both sides agreeing to terminate the matter to ensure a functional industrial relationship going forward. MUA Assistant National Secretary Adrian Evans said the agreement was formally signed after unanimous endorsement of VICT workers. This is one of the most significant agreements ever struck in the maritime industry, bringing the wages and conditions of VICT workers up to industry standards, said Mr Evans. While it delivers valuable wage rises that will see the pay packets of some workers increase by 46.5% over the life of the agreement, the most significant provisions are around job security and the creation of 61 permanent jobs at the terminal. VICT's reliance on casual labour and excessive overtime were the most significant issues for workers, which is why they took legally protected industrial action to further their campaign for permanent jobs that would provide economic security for their families. Without their united voice and commitment to collective action, this agreement with VICT would never have been achieved. Mr Evans said the agreement with VICT, which is owned by the Philippine-based global stevedoring company ICTSI, would deliver certainty for Australian business and the general community. This agreement follows the finalisation of enterprise agreements with almost all of Australia's container terminal operators, he said. We have achieved fair agreements that properly compensate workers for delivering record productivity on the waterfront, while also providing certainty for importers, exporters and the Australian public. There is now only one container terminal operator in the country, Patrick, where the union has been unable to reach a reasonable outcome, despite long-running negotiations. MUA members at Patrick have never worked harder than during the COVID crisis, putting in place the safety measures that have kept vital supply chains operating, guaranteeing the delivery of medical supplies and ensuring supermarket shelves remain stocked. While Patrick has been reaping increased profits on the back of these efforts, along with pocketing congestion and port access charges, they have refused to follow the lead of other container terminal operators and finalise a fair agreement for their workforce. Hairstylists have been sent to the back of the queue again, with their latest national pay rise delayed until November. 
As I reported a few weeks ago, the Fair Work Commission has awarded a 2.5% increase to the national minimum wage and all awards, but phased this increase in three different stages. Workers' pay under most awards, including most trades, will rise in July, and retail workers' pay goes up in September. But hair and beauty award workers, alongside those in tourism and hospitality, won't see their pay rise until November. Daniel Walton, National Secretary of the AEWU, which powers Hairstylists Australia, says the decision is extremely unfair. This makes no sense, as unlike sectors such as aviation and tourism, hair and beauty does not rely on overseas or domestic tourists to make money, Daniel says. Hairstylists are already one of the lowest paid trades in Australia, as well as the only one dominated by women. This just further widens the wage gap. Not only do hairstylists miss out yet again, but this sets another dangerous precedent for holding back fair national award rises. The July 2020 national pay increase of 1.75% was delayed until February for the Hair and Beauty Award. This means for the 2020 financial year, a full-time senior stylist would have lost out on $410 in wages. The latest delay means hairstylists will lose a further $350 in wage increases this financial year. That's $760 in lost earnings for a full-time senior stylist in the past two years, not including allowances. There is now a real shortage of hairdressers, with many salon owners waiting weeks to find staff, Daniel says. Yet industry bodies such as the Hair and Beauty Australia Association oppose any attempt to lift hairstylist wages. Whether it's penalty rates or award increases, a hairstylist can always rely on these industry bodies to oppose any attempt to actually fix the real problem of being the lowest paid tradespeople in the country. It's no wonder so many qualified hairdressers move to other industries where they can get paid more money for less demanding work. Hairstylists are extremely passionate about their industry and their clients, and it's time we started treating them like the highly skilled creative workers that they are. Respect and dignity is not so much to ask for at work. The Transport Workers' Union has welcomed the commencement of Menulog's employment trial as an important milestone toward achieving minimum rights and standards in the food delivery industry. Menulog revealed on June 30th that the first delivery riders had been directly employed as part of its Sydney CBD trial announced in April. The trial will see Menulog pay drivers a minimum wage, leave entitlements and superannuation in a break from the meal delivery industry that sees gig economy workers directly employed for the first time in Australia. TWU National Secretary Michael Caine said all eyes will be on this trial as an Australia first in the gig economy. This trial is an important deviation from the deliberate misclassification model introduced by Uber and replicated by tech startups across the world, which was purposefully designed to circumvent industrial laws and exploit workers. It incentivizes risk-taking, forcing riders to work quickly over long hours. Tragically, six riders died last year. The TWU is excited to see the trial get off the ground. We hope this marks a turning point in what has been a merciless, deadly industry. Menulog is blazing the trail and we look forward to ongoing cooperation to achieve appropriate standards and conditions for food delivery riders. With the right balance, Manulog will find the harmony of fairness and flexibility the likes of Uber and Deliveroo try to deny is possible, said Kane. The TWU is calling on the federal government to level the playing field by urgently implementing a tribunal to set enforceable minimum standards for all workers. 
The ability to eradicate gig economy exploitation depends on the government's willingness to support companies doing the right thing by regulating those hell-bent on doing the opposite, Kane added. Last week, it was revealed that Uber covered up the death of a fourth delivery rider and avoided paying compensation to his family by claiming he wasn't working at the time, despite the worker being logged into the app and still receiving delivery requests even after he had died. The TWU is calling for an independent investigation into why SafeWork New South Wales has allowed Uber to continue operating with the same deadly business model after at least eight riders have been killed. In the past week, Services Australia has ignored lockdown orders in dozens of workplaces across the nation, putting over 10,000 workers and local communities at risk. Managers ignored lockdown and working from home orders in Brisbane, Sydney, Perth and Darwin and in the most recent Melbourne lockdown. Workers have been forced to break lockdown orders and attend the office to perform non-customer facing roles, work from the office when they have the capacity to work from home and being told to use their own leave when identified as a close contact. The Community Public Sector Union, CPSU, is notifying a dispute under national workplace health and safety laws to force the agency to protect the safety of its workers while continuing to provide services to the community in these dangerous circumstances and to force a national rollout of clear standards for lockdowns. The approach of the agency, which includes Centrelink, Medicare and child support workers, has been inconsistent across the country and across business lines. This isn't Australia's first lockdown and there need to be clear and consistent national lockdown standards for localised outbreaks. Low-paid aged care workers should not be made scapegoats for the growing COVID-19 outbreak, unions say, as the federal government's efforts to vaccinate the workforce come under scrutiny. Amid revelations, a 70-year-old unvaccinated woman was one of two new cases at Summit Care Balcombe Hills on Monday, taking the total number of residents diagnosed to five. Unvaccinated workers were still working at the front line to keep the COVID-stricken care facility afloat. Authorities declined to comment on the woman's condition on Monday evening. The four other residents had been vaccinated but were being monitored at Westmead Hospital as a precaution. Jared Hayes from the Health Services Union warned the aged care workforce should not be made the scapegoats following revelations the outbreak at Summit Care was sparked by two unvaccinated employees. Unions cited unclear messaging about the safety of AstraZeneca and a shambolic vaccination rollout for the aged care workforce as reasons for the crisis unfolding in northwestern Sydney. Meanwhile, Health Minister Greg Hunt revealed 97,000 of the country's 280,000 aged care workers have had at least one dose of a vaccine. That was about 6% higher than the average for all Australians, Mr Hunt said. But it's precisely because of this that National Cabinet, with very strong advocacy from the Prime Minister and the Federal Government, made the decision last week to ensure that it would be mandatory for every aged care worker who wishes to work in an aged care facility to be vaccinated, he said. But Mr Hayes said as vaccine clinics were sweeping through aged care facilities earlier this year, doling out jabs to residents, workers were left with limited access to the leftovers despite being considered a high priority for inoculation. The federal government quietly dropped plans to vaccinate aged care staff alongside residents after overseas experience showed that could lead to staff shortages. From the outset, the logistical rollout was not thought through, said Mr Hayes, whose union represented aged care workers in New South Wales. He said the vaccine rollout was complicated by the unique composition of the aged care workforce. 
There's a lot of casualized employment. There's a lot of people working part-time who work two or three different jobs. They're on 22 or $23 an hour, Mr Hayes said. We've had several people contact and say I've been booked in to be vaccinated tomorrow and now due to being short-staffed I have to go to work. Brett Holmes, General Secretary of the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association, said the mixed messaging about the safety of AstraZeneca was to blame for growing vaccine hesitancy among the aged care workforce. I don't think the information about AstraZeneca and its side effects has been helpful in driving people towards vaccination, he said. Aged Care Minister Richard Colbeck did not respond to the criticisms of the vaccination program. Summit Care's Chief Operating Officer Michelle Sloan said unvaccinated staff were still working and commended their admirable decision. That just to me shows their dedication to their residents' care, she said. However, Kathy Maloko, whose father is one of the Summit Care residents to test positive, said it was a crazy situation that people were being encouraged to turn up to work unvaccinated. The federal government and state government is basically hanging Summit Care out to dry. The reality is September 1 to vaccinate all workers is too late. We're in a crisis. Ms Sloan said she had been urging her staff to get vaccinated but couldn't insist they do so. In fact, they were not even obliged to advise us if they had had the vaccine, Ms Sloan said. We would have liked it to be mandated earlier. I believe that our association liaison lobbied for that, as had most industry bodies across Australia. She said the fact vaccination was not mandatory was probably one aspect of the slow uptake among her centre's staff. You're listening to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News, broadcast around the country every week on the Community Radio Network. Black woman, black life, domestic violence, what a life, a change gonna come, my way. This week, I spoke with Dave Karen from Earthworker Cooperative about why peace is cooperative business and how we can work together to build an economy that can address climate change, species extinction and militarism. We, we formed in the late 1990s and um, as, as early as 2002, the, the then General Secretary of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, um, indicated that uh, the, the largest industry in the world by far was the was the global military, and that was in private hands. So that we have private companies now, uh, well beyond what they were in two thousand and two, with with a vested interest in in war, because of course that's the market is irrational. And uh, also now it is of course the global military is one of the largest emitters of greenhouse gas. So uh, th- there is this massive convergence, and we are referring to it as a three-pronged crisis um, because, of course, 
each part of it, whether it's climate emergency, species extinction or war, has the economic underpinning. There is that um, economic drive, especially since the advent of neoliberalism. And really that's been in Australia, at least, going since the 1970s. We've seen that intensification of the attacks on nature. It's earth workers' task is to try to, um, to, to in very practical ways, to, to look at um, putting alternative jobs in place in, in each of those three spheres of, of the global crisis that faces humankind. One of the key characteristics, I suppose, of earth work is the, the importance of, you know, making the things that people in Australia really need, not the felt needs that advertising would drive, and then with friends and comrades from around the world to look at the very complex tasks ahead in de-linking, you know, things like petrochemicals and that from the product range and uh, plastics that are unneeded and unnecessary. And the opposition, you know, to the steps we're trying to take there where we look at actually a a form of distributed ownership to match the distributed energy um, so that, you know, people have, if you like, a, a positive vested interest in in doing what's good for people and planet, the tremendous opposition to everything we do from, from, from neoliberal, just the nature of neoliberalism, not that people are, are evil and, and trying to plot against, you know, us getting co-ops set up that do good things. It's more that, well, for instance, just this week, we lost a tender in Gippsland for solar hot water systems. And, and my understanding is we ticked every box in the tender except price. Mm. So what neoliberalism is telling us, you can play in that field if you want about a just transition. Yeah. But when we say, well, any change represents a cost. So what we're saying is the small amount of dollars difference between what we do and someone else might do, to allow that to govern the decisions you make, just ignores what just transition is. Just transition is where you're going from, from a situation where this does not exist to a position where it does but we don't want to pay for it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Take that to the power of 10 globally in terms of opposition to a way of dealing with this that is people-centred and that has a focus on at least beginning to create an economics that works with the life support systems of the planet. So having, having science as our guide um, and, and justice as our means to look at distributing the ownership through our communities so that we get a, a vestment. Like no one paints the house they're renting, you know, that just does not happen. You know, you own that house, if it needs paint, you'll paint it. In the practical sense, we, we have to mobilise our superannuation in behind social sector economics. Superannuation is workers' capital. It's socialised capital. Uh, and yet it's defined in our daily media as private capital. Right? They talk about it as, as private capital. Um, and, and indeed, private capitalists are making a lot of money out of it. <laughs> out of our workers' capital, right? We've got no comeback. So, you know, it's just the market. What can you do, sort of thing? Go, go back to super. They still, and we do too, continue to talk about an employer contribution in super. Well, of course, there never was an employer contribution. That's work we've already been paid for. And we choose to set a percentage of it aside. And yet the employers are on those boards making decisions. Mm. So, so, you know, for, for us to get to the table, well, our unions are our spokespeople on that stuff and we need to have our unions in a democracy at the table talking about forms of ownership, questions of production, uh, distribution and exchange, all of those things to be decided to have a sector of the economy, 
not the entire economy, okay, but a sector of the economy that, that is democratic and that can allow for we the people with, with our organisations to participate in the planning. Because if we don't plan our way out of this, um, others will do that planning for us. Yes. And indeed, that's what's happening. As we sit here today, one of the most important concerns about where our world is headed lies in the hands of the private owners of the arms companies. And, of course, we are nowhere near their boardrooms. No. We're nowhere near being at their tables and we don't want to be. Excuse the pun, but we have to bite the bullet and close these people. We have to get them out of the, the profession they're in, which is war. You know, where the global military goes now goes our economy because, of course, we know there is a big push, especially on the conservative side of politics, to make us one of the 10 top 10 arms producers in the world. They're doing it nice and quietly, but they're doing it. And, and we, need to, we need to counter that. We've been very clear that just as peace is union business, peace is also cooperative business. Cooperatives and mutuals around the world, of which there are many, many thousands and millions of members, need to take this up more consciously and, and need to, be, you know, need, need to um, uh, assist people in understanding that whatever else we do, however, however successful we are in stopping the private sector distribute uh, weapons of destruction um, is, 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 is one part of work. We, we need to be there with the rest of the people out in the streets demanding that they stop this insane practice. Right? But uh, cooperatives and mutuals, we are very well situated because we're all about um, distributed ownership, which, which provides the means by which people can engage you can't engage with a private company in that sense. You transact with them, you know. And if, you, if we want to continue transacting and buying missiles and submarines and weapons of war, well, we're going to get war because, because the more you buy, the more they produce, they've got to sell it. Are we going to provide those opportunities? And, and as Wicca says, from our perspective, along with unions, we need to say no. We can't afford this now, especially as the population around the world continues to grow and the demand on... The, the life support systems of the planet grows, um, to, to look at, at the threat of nuclear war now because, of course, if, if these hawks have their way and we actually go to war with China, it will, of course, be nuclear. So, you know, um, we can't risk that. We cannot allow people uh, who have a private vested interest in the, in the distribution, in the production, distribution and exchange of, of weapons of mass destruction determine our policies as, as human beings um, on the future of our planet. That's it for Stick Together this week. Thanks for listening and thanks to Dave Karen for taking the time to speak with us. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 0394198377 and leaving us a message. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. I'm Rebecca Mays. Catch you next time. <laughs>